Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Anyway, um, tomorrow's your last morning. So uh, whatever time you have left to sit tonight, I... uh, Make use of it. I mean, you know, with a long sit, then then things get geared up within one, and it becomes very important. Sitting for a long stretch of time is a is a big help. Uh, we're going to do a little bitty thing here out of the Agamas. And the Agamas are the, uh, the, these are the first teachings that the the Buddha gave. And so they're considered the source of all the teaching that he ever gave. And I'm just going to read a little bit here so you know something has preceded this. At that time, at that time, Mahakashapa and Shariputra were both practicing the customary noon meditation under some trees which were not far distant. When Shariputra realized that the heretic monks had departed, and so he went to visit Mahakashapa, uh, they uh, saluted each other and exchanged inquiries about each other's health. Very interesting they do that. I mean, I mean, you know, like with the Kogetsu Roshi, you know, you start, the minute you start talking to him, he inquires about your health. Uh, what's his name over there, Mio Shinji, the Matsumura, Matamura, the little guy with the glasses? Maraguchi. Maraguchi. san First thing, inquire about your health. The second thing, out come the pictures. But, and so this is the case also in India. It's, you, you meet somebody, and the first thing you ask is, you know, how's your health? And everybody smiles, you know, they're smiling, they're showing your teeth. And then they say, fine, <laughs> regardless. Hmm? Yeah. Anyway, then Shariputra withdrew to one side, and having seated himself, gave Mahakashapa an account of the discussion he had held with the heretic monks. See, they had come to see him. Oh, Mahakashapa, for what cause and for what reason has Lokanatha never said one word on the point whether the Tathagata has life and death in the future, whether he has no life and death in the future, whether he has both a future and no future, 
or whether he has neither future nor no future. Mahakashapa answered Shariputra, if Tathagata had said, the Tathagata has life and death in the future, he would have acknowledged the Rupa. Rupa, as you remember from the other day, is the, um, the physical appearance. Uh, Rupa is body, physical appearance body, form, shape, stuff like that, color. He would have acknowledged the Rupa, the physical appearance. If he had said that he had no life and death, he would have acknowledged the Rupa. If he had said that he has both a future and no future, he would have acknowledged the Rupa. Or if he had said that he has neither future nor no future, he would have acknowledged the Rupa or this physical appearance. This is uh, a few sentences out of the Samyukta Agama. There's four Agamas. And it's, as I said, one of the oldest, it is the oldest of the Buddhist scripture. It was um, put together about 200 years, I think, before the birth of the Christ, which would make it uh, about 300 years after the death of the Buddha. Buddha lived 500 years before. <clears throat> these, up until that time, these words had been transmitted orally from teacher to disciple. <laughs> uh -huh. According, which was the custom in those days. Teacher told you, uh, what they thought, what the teacher thought you were capable of understanding, and they used the scriptures to quote them. Hmm? And also, they had this feeling that it was a sacrilege to write anything down, that what they heard should be taken into the heart and remembered so that, again, it could be passed along to another student, because they didn't all have the means of writing anything down, and not everybody knew how to write, and not everybody knew how to read. And we must remember, too, that what was written in those days was mostly on palm leaves, leaves of trees. <clears throat> now, if your mind is very clear, You can take something into the heart and remember it exactly. If there is the slightest little wave of discrimination, if there is any, I wonder if this is true, uh, any proing, any conning, you know, I, I, I agree, I don't agree, any discrimination at all, then you will only remember the part that you have interpreted that is discriminated.
And some of that may be because it's now your interpretation and not what has dropped into the heart directly. It's your interpretation. You won't even remember that very long. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Once in a while, something really hits home that you remember. But how are you going to remember <coughs> a whole scripture, you know, verse upon verse upon verse? Some of these verses are very long. You know, and to me, it's really very interesting. It has been interesting for a long time. I used to <coughs> listen to it when Vivian was around. People would say, he said thus and thus and thus and so. And I had heard the same thing, and I thought, they're crazy. He never said anything like that at all. Not at all. And now I hear the same thing here. Lola said so and so and so and so. And I said, I do? And then I find out what they're talking about, and they're not talking what I said at all. It's simply their interpretation. And, um, and I think, maybe I just better shut up. You know. Anyway, it was about two to three hundred years after the death of the Buddha that these agamas were transcribed from what they call the vernacular, from, you know, into this Sanskrit and this Pali. And they are basically now used in the Hinayana. The Theravadans, small vehicle, who still are trying to keep what the Buddha said intact as what the Buddha said because this is the basis, this is the foundation. And Ayana is the foundation, so here's where we find the Agamas. And the whole story, very shortly, is that some monks came to see the Buddha. <clears throat> and these monks were from the, they were Jain monks. And uh, from the uh, Buddhist point of view, these monks were considered heretic. They must have been considered heretic all over India because they did not follow the Vedas. And of course, this is one reason they finally decided that Buddhism didn't fit in India and why it died out of India, because it too didn't follow the Vedas. It didn't have the Vedas as the background. <clears throat> but the Jains had this that there was no God, that any divinity that is dwells in the soul of a human. They had a, um, the founder of the Jains was called Mahavira, and um, that anyone who wanted to be liberated did so through a right belief, right knowledge, and right action, which included uh, you couldn't kill anything. And India's been big on this anyway. You can't kill anything. I mean, no ants, no insects, no flies, no centipedes, no scorpions, nothing like that could you kill. And then there are, they, they divided to, it's very interesting, 
they had their their the people in the in the Jains who were liberated and became their teachers were called Tirthankas. And uh, <clears throat> they were at one time they they became divided. And then the, the southern Jains never wore any clothes. And the northern Jains did, or vice versa. But anyway, after the 24th Tirthanka, there has never been another one. But the, 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 the guy, the, excuse me, the, the man that is um, the, the, the head of it now, they had a thing about him on television last year somewhere, and he was he he did they showed him walking through India, and he he didn't wear anything. Very strong, positive man. Okay, and they they are considered heretics by the Buddhists, and as I said before, by the rest of the India also. <clears throat> but anyway, these monks. These Jain monks came to visit the Buddha and to ask him a question. And, uh, and it had to do, they wanted to know about his future life and death. Because <clears throat> they wanted to compare it, you know, with, with their Tirthankar's ideas of life and death and the hereafter. Huh? And the question that they asked was, has Tathagata a future life after death? Or has he no future life after death? Has he either a future life after death or no future life after his death? Has he neither a future life nor no future life after his death? <clears throat> This is called Hindu logic. Hmm? When a Hindu asks a question, he puts it in four ways. Yes, no, either yes or no, or neither yes or no. So that it's a question with four bases. He's very well covered. I mean, the, the, the whole thing then is within this framework. We do differently. We say yes or we say no. We've got an either-or situation, which leaves a lot of room for slippages, for other people's interpretations. This has got the four bases. Yes, no, either, neither. Hmm? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, if, if you just look at either or, it's either this or it's that. It's black or it's white. It's either yes or it's no. Then you go along with a, with a situation, and a lot of what you think about it is mere speculation. Because there's a couple other bases that are not covered yet. That's either or neither. Hmm? So when you look at it this way, 
you stand back and, and you, there's four corners to the thing and all is in between that is covered by yes and no and either and either. You look at that and then you wonder, what do you really know? What do you really know? So I think it's time we got down to some nitty-gritties. What do you really know? I don't know anything <laughs> about that. <clears throat> now, the Buddha answered this question. To all of the four versions <clears throat> of this question, Last night we used the word quietude. He answered it with his thundering silence. That's about all you could call it, his silence. You know, you know the, the, there is this in this uh, Nag Hammadi library, this, these books that they found out there in the desert. <clears throat> there is a, there's a poem in there. You know, this is all these Gnostic books, leaves, pamphlets. And one of them is entitled Thunder, Perfect Mind. I've read it to you before. This, this perfect mind silent, but it thunders. It's not a, a mute, it is a thundering mind, and this is called silence. Yeah, yeah sure you know. <clears throat> now, in this kind of a silence, in Sanskrit has a name. We name everything. Avyakrita, it's called. There's this yak in there, which is this, means word. So this is no description or no word. Avyakrita. Hmm? There's no word, but this silence speaks. This silence thunders. This silence imparts something. <clears throat> so when, when the Buddha is sitting there with this thundering mind, you know, he is speaking eloquently. It is, um, this man is sitting there expressing his understanding.
thundering mind and not opening his mouth. It's not non-description, but there's no word. You can say no word if you want, but no. But this avyakrita, this thundering silence, you know, as they say somewhere over there in India, all the gods and the goddesses, all sentient beings, cats and dogs and trees and weeds, understand this silence. It is um, uh, the state, it is a state of the word that was existing before the first word. There was something existing before the first word. They say that the first word was ah. And they say the last word was ah. Now this is silence exists before the first word and exists after the last word. It is Jesus came when he came and he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. So this is before Alpha and after Omega this silence, this no word, no word. So this state, this silence, they say, is omnipresent. It is everywhere. Therefore, it is in you. Its power is omnipotent, that is, <coughs> unlimited. So they call it almighty. Its wisdom is omniscient. infinite awareness and this infinite understanding and this infinite clarity, this silence. The thunders. Now, Buddhists will tell you that uh, one enters Buddhism, the Buddhistic faith, through this gate, the experiencing of this silence. poor little 
one enters the gate of the Buddhistic faith through this silence. Get back to business here. And one attains enlightenment by the practice of this silence, which is in you, and it is called meditation. So this, what is called avyakrita, the reality of it, this no word is a great word. You know, it's, it's like the word love. It represents tremendous power. The word will represents a tremendous power. And the word silence represents a tremendous power. It's palpable, it's living power. With each of these, and others, there are still others, each of these you must experience. It must be a living experience of a living power, dynamic power. Hmm? It's the power that is. It's a power that passeth all understanding, each of them. Hmm? Then when you can say, when you have experienced this will, then you can say willpower and you won't be lying. Or you can say silence and you won't be lying. Or you can say love and you won't be lying. When you know that power itself, which is what it is. Now, when we come together like this, and I'm sitting here before I open my mouth to say anything to you, in that split little second before I do, all of you and I simultaneously make a complete unity in that avyakrita. We learn to pick it up. So the Buddha, these, these heretics come with these questions and the Buddha sits there in this silence. And these, these Jain monks, they look at each other, you know, this guy's not saying anything. And, uh, you know, like a lot of people in religion, it's, it's all uh, for show. You know, so. And so they say to themselves, but this guy's an idiot. You know, he's really a fool. Huh? He's like a baby that has no, un he's got no understanding. He has no enlightenment, and so they leave. So um, they start to leave altogether, and they, they see 
uh, Shariputra sitting under the tree there, you know, so they turn around and they go back. And uh, they sit down and inquire after Shariputra's health. How are you? <laughs> you know, did you have something to eat today? Of course, I guess the Jain monk's not too much interested in eating. But, um, you know, and pretty soon comes up with this thing, and they ask him the same questions. And Shariputra answers them in the same way. You know, he was a pretty tremendous man. <clears throat> and they left him. Well, here's another idiot. What's the matter with this, this outfit? Uh, and nobody says anything. And so Shariputra sitting under the tree there after a while, and, <clears throat> and he sees... Uh, Mahakashapa come out of something, and he sits. Mahakashapa sits down under a tree. Now, of course, Mahakashapa is a giant among these disciples, and so he goes over and greets uh, Mahakashapa, and he goes around and sits down on one side of him. So now they're both sitting under the tree here, and. Uh, and he brings up the subject, and Mahakashapa and, and Shariputra discuss the situation. Hmm. Interesting, that, huh? It's it, very interesting to me. And I wonder how much, and I think I brought, I'm sure I brought this up the other night. In fact, I know I brought it up the other night. Mahakashapa. You know, there's 500 monks. And you know, in, in the custom of those days, they bare the right shoulder and they kneel on one knee. And then they're, they're there, you know, uh, while the Buddha talks. I mean, if you watch the Tibetans, they still do it this way. They bare one shoulder and they're down on one knee. <clears throat> and here are these 500 monks. And here sits the Buddha with this flower. And after a while, Mahakashapa smiles. So he knows what this is all about. And so he became the Buddha's successor. What do you suppose he saw? Hmm? Here's this root stem flower, this lotus thing. You know, here sits this man with this flower. 500 monks. And they're all sitting there, all kneeling there, looking at this flower. Looking at this flower. The only thing is this doesn't have any roots. I remember one time when Vipan came to town and he said, Lola, you go out and get me a lotus flower, root and all. <laughs> Common sense in this, indeed, you're going to get a lotus flower, root and all. Well, I think Rosalind finally came up with one. And Vivian looked at him and he says, past his prime, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. And he used to say, you know, here's this root that's in the mud, and here's this stem that's still in the mud and the water, but here's this tremendously beautiful flower that grows out of the water.
that's not what the Buddha was after, believe me. Anyway, <clears throat> what this, all these questions have reference to, <clears throat> they, they're, they're emphasizing the five skandhas. If the Buddha had said that there was a future life, or that there is no future life, or there is either a future life or no future life, or there is neither a future life <clears throat> nor no future life, his answer would have come from his acceptance of the five skandhas. And the five skandhas, as we know, are rupa, vedana, samnya, samskara, and vijnana. Let me know when. Rupa is the physical appearance, that which seems to appear before you. Seems. It is a seeming appearance. Hmm? Because in actuality, it is what you have projected through the, the mechanism here. <clears throat> the seeming appearance is the sound and the shape and the form and the color. Which reminds me, I think maybe I will do again the abstracting process. It's been 10 years. By now, you've forgotten. We'll do it. Uh, the Vedana are the sense perceptions. This is this mirror upon which the Rupa reflects. Samya is the feeling. We laugh and we cry and we think, and so on. And in the, um, the Buddhistic literature, it is called something like a coarse mind, <clears throat> concrete mind. You know, mind sometimes is very concrete, and sometimes it's very fine, it's, it's more abstract. Hmm? Reasoning, huh? That's the that's that's the outer mind. This is this. Um, then samskara is the finer mind, sometimes called the subconscious mind. And at the very core, at the base of everything, is this vijnana, which we call consciousness. Now, the Buddhist religion speaks a great deal of these five skandhas. And then you go like that and you feel your fingers. Why do you feel your fingers like that? It's very interesting. The Buddhist religion talks a lot about the skandhas. However, the Buddhist religion is not based on these skandhas. It talks about them, but is not based on them. 
the Buddha used the skandhas to make the foundation of Buddhism very clear. He did this with several other things, too, like he used reincarnation and transmigration and so on. They are not the foundation of his religion, his presentation. They are actually not the foundation of any religion. This is something we promulgate because we don't understand. Buddha wanted to clarify thinking in religion. religion of Buddhism, you know, is a religion of the everlasting light, just like Christianity is. They speak of everlasting light. And in his book, uh, The Eremite, which is the hermit, Dr. Plavoff, he called the Buddha a one who had a Gnostic view, that he saw noetically. Now, the literal meaning of, of the Sanskrit term, word skanda, is shoulder. It's a shoulder. It means to stack one on top of the other. Hmm? You know, it's like the neck is stacked on the shoulders and the head is stacked on the neck. Hmm? So you're all kind of stacked together. The shin bones are stacked on the ankle bones, the ankle bones are stacked on the feet bones, and the knees are stacked on the shin bones, and the thigh bones are stacked on the knee bones, on the shin bones, on the ankle bones, on the feet bones. You know, there's that song like that. Don't you remember the song? Sure you do. Uh, what's his name used to play that? The fellow with the orchestra and the big chorus. Who? No. The, the, the nice one. Fred Waring. Exactly. Man, they really did that. Wonderful. Okay. Now, this stacking business. The basis of the human mind. Now, and we're differentiating with words here for a moment because we're talking. Uh, there's nature's mind, a universal mind, and human mind. We're, we're talking, you know. How else, uh, you know, how else are you going to know what I'm thinking? Unless I try to differentiate a little bit here. Human mind, huh? The foundation of human mind is consciousness, right? Yeah. So consciousness is likened to a mirror. Everything is in it. In this are the seeds 
the seeds, like seeds in the earth in the wintertime. Vinyana. Seeds in consciousness. Uh, we have many references to this in the so-called esoteric tradition. Dion Fortune's uh, Order of the Golden Dawn and uh, old-time theosophy and things like that, you know. Um, they, they had this simile, you know, this... Uh, uh, Israel Francis Rigardi wrote a book, you know, about the pomegranates, all these seeds, uh, and uh, also in, in in Buddhism and in Christianity, you know, we find that there are there is the fig tree, the tree on which these seeds grow, the figs, because they're full of seeds, you know, if you've ever eaten a, a fig, full of seeds. And uh, the Bodhi tree, the bow tree, is a fig tree. It's a banyan tree, which is a type of a fig tree under which the Bodhi sat, you know, for however many years, whatever the legend is. Hmm? I mean, they use this for a reason. And uh, Jesus saw Nathaniel under the sycamine tree. And that, of course, too, is a form of a fig tree. So all these seeds are contained in a fig or a pomegranate. And these seeds in the fig and in the pomegranate and in the consciousness react according to circumstances. You know, when the wind blows into a room and it's warm, and the temperature of the air rises. This is circumstances. Okay. So, with situations that come along, circumstances that come and go, consciousness reacts, and the seeds, certain ones, are responsive to certain situations, not to others, and the ones that are responsive, they spring forth. And then you wonder why you act like you do. These are in your consciousness. Hmm? The seeds of all your ancestors. Latent seeds. Maybe a certain circumstance will never come about that whereby certain seeds will respond. You can call it karma if you want, but it comes with this body, the seeds of all your ancestors, circumstances, situations, come about, and consciousness reacts, responds, and so the seeds burst forth. And then you say, but this is not me. Oh, no. Well, it isn't in a way, huh? 
is something you have been carrying. And some things you carry, as I say, and they never develop. Circumstances come about and things develop. Consciousness is a very interesting phenomenon. Consciousness moves, huh? Round. And it, it flickers like a candle flame. You know, and you the breeze, breeze comes along. It's too far away from me. Breeze comes along and, and it moves. You know, it, it responds. It, it, changes its shape a little bit. So, and I often tell you that when you're sitting, you should hold consciousness as a focus of attention, like a candle flame, and never allow it to flicker. That means you're not responding to anything, and the senses are all shut down for that moment. Hmm? You give them a little rest, it won't hurt them any. This is this very still, shining, non-moving flame. It responds, it flickers. You don't allow it to flicker. You keep yourself so steady. Because, you see, it's like a consciousness in you is a living, vibrating energy. It moves quicker than the eye can follow. This is electricity-like, this pure consciousness. Of course, we've got all kinds of things in our consciousness, so you know, it's like this river, you know, that's full of logs and twigs and leaves, and if you go to Bangkok, it's got dead pigs in it and dead cows in it and dead fish and, you know, cats and dogs, the whole works, you know. Maybe people. But even that, there's still pure water. Electric-like energy, pure and shining, becomes involved in forms of emotion, in forms of balance, in forms of crystallizations, forms of shapes because of the crystallizations, you know, like trees, that the branches. And here is this human mind. Front, it has a front and a back. And the mind is always trying in its thinking to maintain a balance. It 
may be moved this way by emotions and thinkings, and then it is moved that way, and it's always the effort to pull it back. You, if you watch yourself through the day, you can see this pulling this way and pulling this way, and then trying to make it balance in the center. This discrimination pulls it this way, this discrimination pulls it that way, trying very hard to come back to a balance. When you hear good things about yourself, you know, it's kind of like there is this smooth rising within you like a piece of velvet. Huh? Yeah. And when somebody sneers at you, well, you get kind of frightened, you know, and you're rather taken aback. And you have a tendency to sneer in return. And there is this grasping sensation that arises. Yeah. With either arising, either this smoothness or this rasping, it appears to the mind as reasoning. Hmm? And in some ways it even appears logical. We can argue ourselves into logic about it, and in some ways this is the development of the human mind. This is what shapes it. The mind shapes, you know. Well, this is the mind. And then comes the five senses, the hearing and the smelling and the tasting and the touching and the seeing. And with that, <clears throat> the crystallization of this consciousness is somewhat complete as the tree has the branches and the leaves and the blossoms, and we're talking now about this shoulder of Vedana. <clears throat> and then here, of course, we're having the senses, why there is this rupa, this body. It's hard and it's soft and it's red and it's brown, and, <laughs> and it's all composed of the same substance, the same material, it's consciousness crystallize. That, that, that bell, that bell. If I touch it, it appears, it seems to me to be hard, like this. It's hard. Huh? But if my hand were as hard as a diamond, this would be soft to my touch. Mm -hmm. There is not really, in actuality, any hardness or softness, particularly, there is no particular hardness or softness. Everything is relative. The hardness of this is relative to the softness of my hand. Hmm? And so with your discrimination of good and bad, and then colors, we have colors that go along with form and shape.
this color. No special color exists. All color depends upon the frequency of the energy as it impinges on the eye. But because it does impinge upon the eye and thereby creating a color in us which we project, consciousness creates what is called an outer world. And where was I hearing this the other day? That somebody was quoting something of the Buddhist thing about we create the world right along with the Buddha. Well, with our seeing and hearing and touching and smelling and tasting, we are creating a world right along with the Buddha world. I hope you can see that and I hope you can understand that. Hmm? The seeming world of appearances, our so-called out there world, is our creation, so to speak. Not that we know we're doing it, but it is because of this mechanism. And all human beings have consciousness, objective self-consciousness, so we could say a similar state of consciousness, and so we all see similarly. Little variations on the theme, but by and large the same. And so we are in a process of creating a similar world. Right? Then what happens? Hmm? The outer world, as it were, coming into the inner mind, you know, as this image, like a photograph. And they say, uh, they use the word stains. It colors the mind, the consciousness. Colors or stains this pure consciousness with color. When the human mind makes this contact with what is here, we have this response to it or this reaction to it, and we make up a name, we call things good, bad, indifferent, pure, impure, human, animal, plant, rock, or God. Hmm? We put them all in categories. So the outer, as it were, seeps into or soaks into the inner. And the pure mind, and using St. Paul's word, is now we have corruption. The mind is corrupted. The mind is shaped. And uh, Henry would have said, so we live with a deluded mind. It is a, a, a stained mind, a colored mind. Huh? And 
without our even knowing it. We live in delusion and we constantly deceive ourselves because we are not alert to what is going on. Now, everything that is in existence <clears throat> has its own particular manner. That is, it has its own way. I mean, we are all here as human beings. We are all states of objective self-consciousness, so we should all be the same, but we're not. We, we, we all have our own manner, and we have our own way. Hmm? And we do this, we have our own way, according, to, of course, to these seeds, and to the place where we find ourselves. A willow tree, let us say, that grows by the water becomes like the water. It willows. Huh? You put a willow tree someplace else and it doesn't willow quite as much. But by the water it willows and sweeps the water, you know, and it is so pleasant. Hmm? So it, it has a samskara of the water. <coughs> water shape moves like water. Water nature. The pine tree grows with rocks. Hmm? So they call it stone-minded. Its nature is like a stone, and a pine tree acts like a stone. Mm. Towers there. Mm. So a human being also changes his nature or her nature according to the nature of circumstance. So these five skandhas, I'm still talking about them, they do two things. They rise, they emerge, they go out. They flow out, and then they take in. And both their rising and flowing out, and their taking in changes the nature mind of a human being. Yeah. See, now here comes a lot of shoulder business, because as a human being, according to his nature now, looks out there, flows out there, and takes in and changes. And the changes are on top of what is already present. And then he flows out, takes in, and changes. We've got piling, stacking. Once you accept something as valid, you will file other things on top of that concept. You stack them in there. And you go out, and you bring it in. but. Your psyche is um, 
discriminates, just like the eye does. There's a blind spot in your eye. And that's why you keep blinking and looking back and forth. Otherwise, you will not see what is before you. There's a little blind spot that leaves out part of it. The psyche does the same thing. So it discriminates. Hmm? Once you accept something as valid, you stack other stuff on top of that concept. But things will be that you stack in there and that you see will be in accordance with what you have already accepted. Everything else is thrown out. Sometimes it takes a very great jolt to allow us to see anything else. I'm sorry to lay this on you. As if <laughs> this is the need for going back to the basic innocence. This is the need, if you want to know, to get rid of the concepts that you have so they don't have so much of a hold of you so they keep taking in the same stuff over and over and piling it and piling it and piling it until you not, don't even recognize the first concept that you accepted. because you're still taking all this crap. <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking for tape. You can't sell these tapes out to anybody in the group. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you reach down, you push down into yourself to a place where no word can reach, where there is no sound, where there is no color. You move down out of the realm of the five skandhas. As long as you're just sitting there in the five skandhas, you will not be free from anguish. You know, there is a way out of the anguish. There is an end to the anguish. Okay? The body, its tendencies, the desires, the feelings, and the thinkings, we agonize in all of these ways, many ways. But deep within each of us, where there is no sound, no color, out of the reach of the thinking mind, where there is neither past, nor present, nor future. It's beyond space, 
beyond time. It is ageless. It is boundless. It is immeasurable. No one can see it. No one can imagine it. But it is. It is. Now. In meditation, you will come to see that there is a state that has nothing to do with this body or the five senses. With our consciousness, your know, consciousness is self-consciousness, comes into existence when we come into existence. And when it comes in, and so when it's going to go when our existence ends. This is this kind of consciousness, huh? Meditation is a life and death matter. The state beyond consciousness is not life or death. It is. It is spoken of as nirvana. Nirvana, near, near is a negation. You know, it's like a wiping out. Uh, you know, and then under the term saguna Brahm is yes, this God has qualities, and we endow this God with qualities. We give it. We give it. We created this God. We created him in our image. Therefore, we could endow him with all kinds of things. But there is this nirgunabram, no quality God. Hmm? Saguna, you can think about him as much as you want. Nirguna, you can't think about. There's no qualities to think about. See, it's wiped out. So nirvana is wiped out. It's blown out. If you're blown out, how do you think? You don't. Huh? No. What can you do with a no color, no sound world in which you can't think? Huh? Concepts don't help anything. You can't make them up. Huh? You can't say this is good and this is bad and I want this and I don't want that. All these discriminations don't exist. You know, all for this great big me that is blown out. But there is not life and death. Now this Tathagata, whom they called the Buddha, <coughs> Tatha means that, meaning the original essence of this body. Not this form, not this shape, not this color, not this sound, but the essence thereof. What this body originally is, it, and it is that now. Hmm? Some people say, well, it's Akasha. Well, okay, that's fine, except you just got another word and you can't tell me what that word is. Because if you could, you could tell me what the essence here now is. These are the crazy things we do with our heads. 
Tathagata, he comes, he goes, but he's always that essence. He came thusly, thusly he goes, thusly come. came in his original essence, he remains in his original essence. Why make something else out of it? Hmm? There is no life and death to it. It is unborn, it is undying. The one whose rupa has been completely annihilated is the phraseology. And this word annihilated makes a lot of trouble. People think annihilated, I'm annihilated, means when, the, you know, the, the <coughs> life leaves the body and the body is lying there and it's cremated and it's reduced to ashes. Don't look at it that way. Mm -mm. His body has been completely annihilated means that his concept, his notion, his idea, that this body, this physical body, has been completely annihilated. The concept of it has been annihilated. This body is what it has always been, the original essence. It is this original essence that appears to the eye as shape and form. And we call it body. And so we have all these concepts that are piled one on top of the other. Hmm? It is essence. This body. This body, as you're looking at me now, exists to the eye. Exists only to the five senses. We could say this body consists of fire, water, air, and earth. The four great elements, huh? But basically, still one element. It is the essence. And no one knows what that is. And I explained that to you already, didn't I? You're in a no sound, no color world. You can't think and you can't have a concept. So how are you going to know what it is that way? That knowing, knowing, you can't talk about it. You can't think that no. So the Tathagata is the one whose rupa, that is the seeming appearance, has been completely annihilated. His idea, his concepts about the shape and form and sound and color. Whose mind has attained perfect emancipation whose mind is fathomless, boundless, ageless, and dwells in nirvana. Dwells in nirvana. 
the state of absolute annihilation. The seeming contradiction of all of that. Huh? It's a very positive statement. It's not at all negative. It is very positive. The whole world is in nirvana. The whole world is completely annihilated. And this has nothing to do with the meaning of death. Right now, right here, we are all in nirvana. Wake up and look at it! Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe in the morning you could tell me what nirvana looks like. <laughs> Either that or if you want something easier, why you could tell me about Mahakashapa, what he saw. Okay? I hope you had a good week. And I hope to see you in the morning and on Sunday, excuse me, Sunday morning. Okay? If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.